Hello and welcome to our podcast series, The Family of Things, a podcast of ideas, life and how we live it. I'm Helen Shaw and in this series I get to talk to people who are living life with passion and ambition about their stories, their journeys to where they are and their hopes for the future. Today I'm joined by a woman who's really daring us to be just a little bit wild and it's wild in the sense of wilderness, filmmaker Vivian de Corsi. And Vivian, Every time I talk to you, I kind of think that cats only get nine lives, but you seem to have at least a dozen. Vivian, can you maybe give us an idea about where home really is for you? Because you've lived all around the world, but where is home? Well, ideally, home is on a really fantastic hike through the Wicklow Mountains, which is probably one of my favourite places to hike because I love the wilderness and... I live in London now and I've indeed lived in America and Chicago in high rises. But I always feel that my my heart and my soul kind of belongs hiking in some manner, shape or form through wild nature. It's my major passion. And where did you grow up, Vivian? Well, I grew up, first of all, on the edge of the Curra Plains so that my, my first word was actually horse because at the end of our garden were the horse gallops and we used to hear bit a bump bit a bump bit a bump when I was in my pram and I used to get extremely excited, according to my mother, and then when the horses would break into view at the end of the garden, I'd start screaming with excitement. <laughs> in a sense, I know you've had so many different careers or phases in your life, but this love of the wild, of wilderness, of nature and the environment, does that begin in the where does it start for you? My father was in the Irish Army and so we, we moved to the town of Athlone and my mother was an English school teacher and a kind of a director of, of local theatre and indeed a, a kind of a championship bridge player. But the two of them had a wonderful and I think very unusual relationship. And we lived from the time I was about eight on by the shores of Loch Ree in a house that they built. And my father taught me how to use an outboard boat, you know, one of those little fishing boats. And I mean, when you think of it like you'd never let your child do it now, but I used to be allowed to go off across the lake to my friend's house on the far side of the lake in a beautiful place then called Portley Castle. And when we were children, we used to be able to camp on islands and take picnics. And it was just a magical kind of a swallow in Amazon childhood. It also gave you a lot of confidence because you were very young and you were out. You know, a storm would whip up in the lake and what were you to do? I remember we used to stand on the battlements of the castle and lean out into the breeze. You know, like it gives me heart attacks that I survived all of that. But we did. It sounds very free. Yes. I think what I think they gave to me and all those experiences of nature that I had as a, as a young child was, was an enormous feeling of comfort with nature and a kind of a self-confidence that you can blow with the wind and travel on the wind and you can swim and you can sail and all of these things that we did. And it was very, you, you, we were definitely free spirits and encouraged to be, but there was also a huge emphasis on discipline and doing jobs. And I mean, my father, who was a military man, used to say, clear the decks, clear the decks, ship shape, ship shape. He had all these weird, you know, almost British Navy phrases for like, if you didn't clear off the kitchen table after you finished your dinner, you were in a lot of trouble. He'd check it. And in some ways, that idea of both the discipline from your father's military life and that freedom, the wilderness of just being out as a child, free on the water in mm. nature, those two things maybe gave you some of that resilience that you've had in your life. Well, I suppose the life I've lived, you'd need to be relatively fearless. And in fact, I'm quite fearful of nature in one respect, insofar as I have an awful lot of respect for the power of the wild. But I've also an awful lot of belief in the power of the wild to regenerate 
if we give it a chance, which is what I started to base the first stories I wrote on. They're based on Gaia theory, which is James Lovelock's theory that the Earth is a big superorganism that will self-correct if you give it a chance. So the, the trilogy, the Dare to be Wild trilogy, is based on that philosophy. Yeah. So Vivian, Dare to be Wild, this feature film you've made, which is the true story of Mary Reynolds, the gardener. We'd all know her from her TV appearance and the fact that she won Chelsea as a gardener and it was a big story then. But you took that as the basis for the start of the, what, you're, what you're seeing as a trilogy about nature. Yes, I guess I started, I, I got cancer when I lived in Chicago and I was a corporate lawyer about, gosh, it must be in the early 1990s. And I got breast cancer and my then, now my late husband said to me then, you know, you've always got these ideas and an ideas worth nothing until you executed, you know, smart Jewish lawyer that he was. It's all about execution. You don't just have ideas and talk about them. You do something about them. And after that, I realised, you know, I better get my act together and start writing here. It changed the scenario. I mean, you were a corporate lawyer. You were in an was, environment where you yeah. were living a very high octane environment, working as a corporate lawyer in the States. Yeah. That's right. And, you know, having to travel, I had a small child and having to travel a lot for the job. And I suppose not very happy, but making a very good living, but but probably very unhappy. And I started to figure out a system where I could work for six hours a day, which meant condensing my work. And then I started writing for three hours a day. So I probably started writing with some seriousness in about 1993 and late 1993. And was that when you had breast cancer? And that was, yes, exactly. You know. Was it a way of coping with that trauma? Well, I never really thought about the fact that I'd had cancer again. I just decided, OK, park that and let's get on with what you really want to do, which is writing. But I didn't think it would take me kind of 20 years to make the first movie. And I had always wanted to make films. I didn't want to write books. I was really interested in screenplays. So I just literally bought books and started studying how people did it, you know, Sid Fia's books and so on. And I didn't have a community of writers around me because most of my friends probably were corporate lawyers and bankers and investment people, you know. So I learned some very useful skills for going to Hollywood, I guess, and that I, I learned, first of all, not to be afraid of, you know, the Harvey Weinsteins of this world. And I learned how to drive a deal. And I learned when there's something you're really passionate about, you can't be afraid to walk away. So incredible mixture of skills going on there. So you start to write this trilogy, mm -hmm. which is driven by the idea of the planet, the Earth, Correct. recovering itself from, I guess, I suppose, the damage we as humans inflicted on it. That's correct. I mean, the, the, there's another kind of strange background to that in that when I was a child, we used to go every Sunday to my great aunt Una's house in Eglinton Road. And my great aunt Una had no children, but she had an awful lot of style. She was voted the best dressed woman in Dublin in 1929. And her husband was a man called Professor Paul Nolan. And Professor Paul Nolan used to take an interest in me when I was a child. So when the adults would go off kind of after lunch, he'd say, do you want to play some games, Vivian? And he used to set me these little problems. And he had developed something called the Nolan Pollock scale, which was the original scale in the 30s and 40s, which measured the amount of pollution in the atmosphere. And Pollock, actually, because Pollock was at Trinity, who was his partner, got the Nobel Prize and he would have got a Nobel Prize. And, you know, James Lovelock would have built on their scale to do Gaia theory. So 
I just loved him. And so he used to tell me all about the atmosphere. It's just interesting, isn't it? I mean, it was it was before, you know, we ever heard of Earth in the Balance by Al Gore or any of that. But when I was tracing it back, my fascination with the atmosphere and the air that we breathe, I guess, and fresh air and the forests well, all came from then. And the stories that you were hearing in your great aunts? Long ago in the little, in the house in Eglinton Road, yeah. And in a sense, this trilogy that you have written as screenplays for films they take us through true stories, but take us from the beginning of the story. Like, how would you see or how would you describe the trilogies as they work as a story? The whole point of the stories are that they must inspire us. It's not just about, you know, your typical dark dystopian tale. It's about how do we cope with what we've created for ourselves? What are the good people of the world to do to really turn it back? And it's not like, you know, Batman and the Avengers kind of stuff. It actually takes real problems and how we address real problems in as much as I'm able to do that within the story. And so give us a framing, because Dare to be Wild is a true story about a a real character in Ireland, Mary Reynolds. How does that fit with the science fiction? Well, so I don't know if you remember that lovely series of stories, Red, White and Blue, that were distributed, I think, by Harvey Weinstein. Exactly. So I had that kind of an idea that you would have a loosely connected system of stories. And what I have here is I have two stories set in the future, which I actually wrote first. Breathe is the second one and Tree is the third one. Breathe is set 150 years into the future and it's going to be the great-grandchildren of Mary Reynolds because I want to keep it like what is going to happen to our great-grandchildren. And so there's an element of that in Breathe, but I built it in subsequently after I discovered Mary Reynolds and she became one of my dearest friends and I think she's a genius at what she does. In fact, there's no question about it. I think she'd be remembered 150 years into the future for what she came up with in 2002 And so the story we've just made is the first part, which is the true story and the foundation block of the science fiction epics in the future. Fantastic. And we're going to hear the trailer now from Dare to be Wild. I believe that man is nature. Nature man. One and the same. Thank you for my gold medal for garden design at the Chelsea Flower Show. I'd like to apply for the competition. You sound extremely young. Chelsea is for seasoned professionals. I've been accepted to compete at the Chelsea Flower Show. 2,000 applicants and you made the cut. Do you have any idea how difficult it is to get this much funding to build a garden? And how much do you need? £250,000. Who's going to donate to the likes of me? This is an opportunity to change how people think. The reality is you cannot create a wild nature garden at Chelsea in three weeks. And Vivian, can you remind us about Mary Reynolds' story? I mean, some of us have seen her. She's still on television doing elements of gardening. But I was really taken when I saw the film, which is so beautiful, that this story relates to such a profound journey in terms of global environment and ecology. You've become friends with her, but but give us a sense about Mary's own story. So I came back from America in 2000 and I managed then to buy a little farm in West Cork and I sent out a design brief to several people and the only person that came back with the most magical idea was Mary Reynolds because I had asked for a wild garden, the theme of which was Celtic Zen, that had, you know, a moated effect around the house that had a fairy tale lyricism that had no right angles. And she literally went right through all of my design brief and ticked every box, but went way beyond my wildest dreams. 
And it's hard to explain how bizarrely beautiful Mary's designs are because they give you the atmosphere of wild nature, which a typical garden doesn't give you. And Mary came along like six months later wearing a kind of a, a full length tulle skirt with a pair of big boots and a protective helmet on her head and just walked me around the ideas and concepts that she had. And so then she told me her story, which had only at this stage happened two years earlier when she had actually been kind of unemployed, but had been to see the Chelsea Flower Show and it was her first time ever out of Ireland. I mean, the movie that I wrote subsequently, Dare to be Wild, really tracks what happened to Mary. She applied for the Chelsea Flower Show, not realising that she had the biggest long shot ever because she had no money, no clout, nobody knew her. She was actually 25, I think, when she applied and she won the Chelsea Flower Show when she was 26. But... She had to make the cut from about 2,000 to eight people. She made the cut by nefarious means because she pretended she had the money and she pretended that she had the people who could build a wild garden in three weeks at Chelsea. And of course, she had absolutely no idea how she was going to do any of this, except that she went ahead and did it. And then she made the cut because she got on really well with the head administrator's secretary. And the head administrator, she sent her some herbs from Ireland to deal with her allergies. And it was through the herbs that Mary sent her from her little cottage that she lived in in Wicklow that the administrator was just charmed by her and actually cracked open the application and then put it in front of the judging panel. And once you read it, you love it. And so they put her in. But then, of course, she'd no money and then she'd nobody to build the garden. So what's she going to do? So she heard that there was this crowd down in West Cork called Future Forest, all these kind of dropped out anti-establishment British, yes. I mean, they're really botanists and they really are incredibly skilled people. But to everybody else... they do look a bit like hippies. To everybody else, they would look like hippies. The same crew, I call them the Green Angels, who built Mary's Chelsea Garden in 2002 also built the garden that we used and they're actually in the movie and it's just one of the dearest things to my heart because you couldn't get them out of central casting they had to be the real people and they built it 14 years after it and they built it again you and know? it's this fantastic love story then which goes from Ireland to Ethiopia and back and in the middle of it you have this very deep narrative about of how while we love wilderness we don't actually nurture it but the love story is kind of interesting because at the end everybody's wondering do they get it together and in some ways when I saw the film with you at the screening in Skibbereen obviously the key character the very gorgeous young man who does build the wall yes. and is from that community West Cork yeah, okay, okay. Future with, Forests was with somebody else Yes, Future Forests is Christy Collard's family business and it's now run by Christy's sister Maria who has a little girl worked on the Chelsea Garden and West Cork then, like Marrakesh and Goa, was on the hippie trail. And so in 1971, Christie's father came to West Cork and just never went back to Oxford because he wanted to prove that a man could live and sustain a family on his own land without exploiting either nature or other people. And he largely did it. And Christie was the eldest son and Christie became obsessed with nature and became a kind of a botanist, if you will, in his own life. But he's also a master builder. For example, he builds the electric picnic stages and all the rest. And so Mary took one look at Christie and it was a coup de foudre and she just fell in love with him. And that night she went into future forests and she sold them on supporting the gardener. When I say she sold them, she sold everybody except Christie because he was leaving to go to Ethiopia. And he thought the Chelsea Flower Show was for fashionistas and unworthy. Superficial nonsense. Super Nonsense. And his idea was that we have to bring nature back to the Ethiopian forests in, in the highlands 
because they were actually man-made devastation. And he wanted to prove back in 2002, when he was 23, that you could actually reforest land that was now made into desert. And he proved it, and he was actually supported in that by a Japanese writer, the J.K. Rowling of Japan, who actually sponsored his first forest park in Lalibela in Ethiopia. And Vivian, you've made a beautiful film which has a message, but it's also got this very powerful emotional journey and a love story which really works. There's great charisma between the actors, but it doesn't really work out in real life. And I suppose you do end the film knowing that despite that, Mary and Christy don't get together. Well, as Mary and Christy would both say, it was a magical time in both of their lives. And she actually went to Ethiopia to bring him back because he was the only person who she knew in the world who could build a wild garden in three weeks with 500 wild plant species. Because future forests, if you want to field the bluebells, you can call them up and they'll come with bluebells because they went behind the Celtic tiger cruise when we were building the highways and took out all the old hawthorn trees and everything that was in hedgerows and replanted them on their own land. That was something that they did. They're the only place in the British Isles that does that in future forests. And so when she went to Ethiopia, he kind of thought she was just this funny, quirky girl that was bent on being a, a gardening star. And she proved herself to him in Ethiopia because she designed a garden there in a platform that the people of Lalibela really loved. And so that enabled her to get him to come back. And then they built the Chelsea Garden together with all of these people who are in the movie. And obviously, Mary and indeed Christy have gone on to do great things in their own life. I mean, what was fascinating watching it was that you actually filmed in Ethiopia, in Lalibela. What was that like? I mean, I know Lalibela and the religious sites in Ethiopia are not usually very keen on women being in them, let alone filming happening in them. Well, that was a very interesting story because Christy came with us, the real Christy, who had been in Ethiopia back in 2002, and he knew everybody in the town and everybody kind of worshipped him. And he managed to persuade the head of the priests to allow us to shoot in the religious compound. And we had to pay them a rather substantial contribution, but it was worth every penny. And when we shot the scene, which was probably the most memorable moment for me in making the whole movie, the priest said they would chant for us for 30 minutes and we could move our actors around. The echo effect in the chamber, and they do this kind of movement, like it's it's the foundation blocks of reggae, if you like, of reggae music, but it's the most ancient, mystical, spiritual sound probably I've ever heard in my life. And when they came to an end, we were kind of standing up on a platform above them and we had shot the actors and so on. Everybody on the crew, everybody was crying. I mean, I think about it now, and it was such an intensely moving moment of kind of bonding between all of us that everybody understood what we were trying to do. Like, the priests understood that we wanted to try and reforest the highlands, and that's why when you see Mary having her vision on top of the mountain, she actually realises that we could bring the forests back, we could bring the rainforest back, we can stop deforestation... All of this could be done for a fraction of the price of the average war. I mean, that's the sad part. Anybody looking at film uh, coming from Hollywood or across Europe, we know it takes a long time to make. But from your own beginning as a writer writing this screenplay, how long has it taken to make this film? Well, I guess it has taken me from the time I met Mary Reynolds. I probably started writing the film, talking to Mary in 2004 and then rewriting it and then rewriting it some more and talking to people and eventually 
finding people who are willing to, I think they were probably sick of listening to me, <laughs> you know, talking about this idea and how important it was to the environment that we all start rewilding and how important it was that if we could protect bees and butterflies in our own garden by the vegetations we have, it was important to the environment. And if our own gardens have the atmosphere of wild nature, we'll actually understand what it is to protect the wilderness because most people don't have that anymore. And so it, it was it was quite the journey and it's still quite a journey because, you know, we're still selling different territories and it's a very hard journey. And in a but sense, it's a worthwhile journey. I mean, do I regret a day of it? There's some things I might have done differently, but I don't regret the journey at all. There's been a lot of coverage in the last year about women in Hollywood, women in filmmaking, the lack of directors who are women, and in some ways the whole story about financing of films. What's your perspective on that, the challenge that faces women getting their stories into the big screen? Well, the challenge is kind of almost... For me, a different question, because although only I think the percentage is 1.6 women get to actually direct films and I was a writer director. And if I hadn't written the screenplay, I don't know how I would have ever gotten to direct it. But the challenge is more, you know, connectivity, you know, in that Cameron's wife is able to do Zero Dark Thirty or stuff like that. But she's very networked into the whole Hollywood scene because like any other business, it's a, it's hugely a business of connections. And within the whole Hollywood makeup, an awful lot of films that are made nowadays, I like to call them dick flicks. And I'm saying dick flicks here because it's a kind of a pejorative phrase. So the fashion is for, you know, dark, tortured and, and, and twisted. But this year there's been a plethora of film-driven films, just as there was in the 1930s. And the most interesting statistic on that is that if you go back to 2014, zero co-productions between Britain and America had female protagonists, whereas this year there were several. So suddenly they got the idea, oh, maybe there's a market here. Now, you know, I guess I like Pulp Fiction as much as the next person or Saving Private Ryan. I don't really have a problem with that. My problem is that we need to redress the balance between beautiful and inspirational and uplifting films versus dark, twisted torture films, which has been the norm even in Ireland culturally for probably the last 15 years. You know, they're looking for the next Gone Girl. They're looking for what they call edgy, kind of dark films. Now you've mentioned your great aunt mm-hmm. and the stories you heard from her. You've mentioned your father. But I'm curious about what's shaped and made you, what's influenced you to be on that path now where your mission, you might say, your motivation is to inspire? Well, I suppose I was I was an only child. My sister was quite a lot older than me, so she was in boarding school almost by the time I was born. And I think I had a charmed existence with my, my parents. Like, my mother was out most evenings. She was teaching English and French during the day in Athlone and subsequently in Dublin. And my father, as I say, was in the army. And as a result of that, he was interested in all kinds of things. So he stopped reading Winnie the Pooh to me as a bedtime story very early. And he started reading, you know, um, Herodotus. (laughs) And so he was also really fascinated with strategy and war games, because obviously he was in the army. And he used to buy all these little toy soldiers. And he would say, tonight we're going to play the Battle of Actium. (laughs) And he would set out the Battle of Actium on the kitchen table, complete with like hills. He'd use, he'd use a big towel, you know, and he'd kind of create a hill with saucepans under the towel. And we'd set out the battle and where was Caesar? Now, here was where the armies were. Now, how do you actually manage 
if you've got much less men and you're in a bad position to attack the enemy, you know. And he used to, and then we moved on to the, he was very, very interested in uh, the Peninsular War and Napoleon and Napoleon strategy and Wellington strategy and all this. So we used to do a lot of that. And then the rest of the time he used to read me really interesting books that he was interested in. You know, I was nine, but I mean, and I thought this was quite normal. And then my mother would come back at the end of an evening with her bridge partner, who was usually a man. And we lived in an army barracks at this point. And I often think the soldiers must have thought it was absolutely bizarre that two nights a week my mother went out with different men to play bridge and then came home and my father gave them all sherry there was no swinging going on but it looked like there might have been but I thought that was totally normal you know because my father was a very liberated man insofar as he used to say in the early 70s, I'm only voting for women because men have really screwed it up. But I'm finding it very hard to find women on the voting register. So I remember one of the people he voted for over and over again, even though we weren't a particularly Fianna Fáil family, was Mary O'Rourke because he liked her. <laughs> Great. Yeah, That's so funny. unusual. Yeah. Oh, like he was very unusual. And what do you think shaped that with him? To be a man at that period, to have that view on women seems... Unusual well, he in ad- the extreme. He adored his mother and she was very formative in his life and he grew up in Carlo and his father had been in the trenches in the British Army but his mother was a kind of, of a nationalist background and I think there was a lot of reading in their house. I mean, I remember he had a set of Dickens first editions. He loved Dickens. And we always had a big history library, you know, and today I have a big history library and I read a staggering amount. So the history was there. And then my mother was fascinated with Shakespeare and she was always putting on at the local theatre or in the school Shakespearean plays. And then her other big thing that she used to say, here's how you learn how to write. And she used to make me listen every Sunday morning before Mass to Alistair Cook's Letter from America. And she used to then use that in her English class, which I was at one point part of, to say, OK, so here's an opening line, children. A hundred years ago in America today, a man was sat upon, knifed and knew all about it. What do you think that essay is about? And nobody had any idea except me because I'd heard the whole of Alistair <laughs> Cook and I knew it was about the invention of anaesthetic in the Massachusetts General Hospital. But she used to really use Alistair Cook to show you how you weave a story. How fantastic. Yeah. And then they were both very good artists. So when we went on holidays, we used to go with little easels and everything into the countryside and paint landscape. My mother used to boast that she'd got first place in Ireland in art in the 19th. 30s <laughs> so there was a lot of that I thought I was going to be an artist so well, that's what's mm. curious about what you're telling me because mm-hmm. you became a lawyer well when I was about 17 and I was about to do my leaving cert and I thought I was going to go to some grand art school somewhere I had my eye on the actually the Viennese art school my parents kind of took me out one day and they said now Um, you can be a doctor or a lawyer, which would you like to be? And I said, what? I don't want to be a doctor or a lawyer. I think you should probably be a doctor because, you know, you like, you're you're very interested in people and all that. I said, but I don't like maths. Oh, we're going to get you a grind in physics and maths. It won't be a problem. I said, no, it will be a problem. (laughs) It is a problem. I only like English history and art and I really don't like anything else. So in the end, they were very concerned to give you something they thought was the secure future and you were were bright, so they wanted you to be a doctor or a lawyer. Exactly. That was... And I say this to, you know, my Jewish friends in Los Angeles and they all roar laughing because they all had the same theory, you know. So it was like I said, I wasn't of a Jewish family, but I may as well have been, you know. (laughs) My son, the dentist, is drowning, you know, this kind of philosophy. The Montanotti mother. Exactly. The Montanotti mother, that was it, yeah. But the, the, the really interesting part of my mother's family was that during the War of Independence, the four women, who one of whom I was talking about earlier, she was married to the scientist that was the developer of the Nolan Pollock scale, And she was a really, really stylish woman, but she had been a science teacher 
in the Ursuline Convent in Cork during the War of Independence. And every Friday she used to meet an old British gentleman at the train with a boater hat, kind of I see him like a James Joyce character. And she would meet him on the platform after she left school and she would swap school bags with him. And she would then bring the school bag he had given to her, which came directly from Broy via Michael Collins onto the train and out to Tom Barry, because Tom Barry and the West Cork Flying Column lived in the back of their house. And she was kind of, if you like, a courier. And then her sister was a Shannos singer called Marcella Hurley, who's mentioned in Tom Barry's book because she was kind of the Sinead O'Connor of the revolution, you know. And they were just, I used to sit at the table listening to them talk and I have this memory of them. They were just, I don't know why it's like so upsetting for me, I suppose it's because they're all gone. Because they're all gone. It's a bit like, you know. It's like the dead. The dead. Joyce wrote it as such a young man, but it's because for all of us, it's that thing of loss and nostalgia. And the really bizarre thing about that family is they lived very near Future Forests in that same valley in West Cork. Like when I drive to Future Forests, I drive right past the ridge that went over their house that was the head of Tom Barry's flying column. But my grandfather, who's a man called Jeremiah Hurley, was a kind of a, a runner in the cooperative society. And he was actually provisioning the British army with all the produce of the valley. And the produce was honey. And so his eldest daughter, brought the idea of beekeeping. This is before the turn of the century, you know, 1900. She went to study farm husbandry in Belfast and Queen's University way back in the late 1800s and brought beekeeping back to the valley. And my grandfather was an out-and-out pacifist, even though his daughters were revolutionaries and all he wanted was for his daughters to be safe. So I think that's probably why, in a roundabout way, why my parents were worried that I'd be safe and I'd be a doctor or a lawyer. And ironically, (laughs) all these things come home in your passions now the bees, yeah, the bees exactly, passivism, the bees. Funny, and this love of nature that in some ways you're being true to your genetic base. Well, we used to go there in my childhood summer holidays to this incredible valley, Borland Valley in the Camola Valley in West Cork. And they're like the valley in, in that Frank O'Connor story, the dogs in the Great Glen. You know, it's that feeling of a valley. So home now, in many ways, while there's a metaphorical home in your head and you have a place in Baltimore, home is London and... It's a very different lifestyle to where you are now. It is. London is a wonderful city and it's a great city, ironically, to be Irish in today. It's a very welcoming city if you're Irish and that old antipathy is so gone. And when I was there working in the 70s in my first job, kind of just in the early 80s out of law school, it was a very different world because there was the IRA bombing campaigns were going at full tilt. And I remember one day the swimming pool where we used to swim in the city at lunchtime was bombed and it was really awkward coming back after lunch and being Irish. Even though obviously my friends in the bank were, were extremely nice about it, but it had been the swimming pool where we used to go and it was in some way the victim of a, of a bomb. And it's just a very, very different world now. And I think both the Irish and the British have come an enormous way. Like we really models of how a peace process should work over time. And for you at this stage with this film, Dare to be Wild, now out there and meeting audiences, what's your dream? What would you love to see happen as the next period of your life unfolds? I just feel that I suppose we're all given by the grace of God special gifts And I think mine is to take these inspirational stories, which are very, very hard to write and and take an awful lot of work and discipline and actually just make stories which in some way positively impact how we live on planet Earth and how our 
children and grandchildren will live in planet Earth and just open people's eyes to possibilities. I'm really only interested in great inspirational stories because I think there's enough people doing everything else and that's what I want to do. So Vivian de Courcy, writer and filmmaker and hopefully a positive voice for a better future. Thank you for joining me and sharing your story. Thank you very much, Ellen. It was a pleasure.